want you guys to think of a time, a time in your life, when you felt just out of place. Like, you're in a situation, and you're like, I should not be here. Like, I am below this. This is, I, I am unworthy to be in this setting. Or maybe a time where someone served you or done something for you, and you're like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? I, I, I'm not worthy of this. Don't, don't do that. Or, or maybe it was a time where you walked into like a wedding and you thought it was casual and you showed up and everyone else was in suits and you're like, oh no, I messed up. And you felt just out of place for it. Um, or you just saw someone do something and you're like, that surprises me that she would do that or that he would do that. It seems that his position or her position would not lend her to serve in that way. I know f- for me, uh, I think of a couple of times that I, I enjoy golf, so I love golfing, but the, here's the thing, I'm horrible at golf. I make myself feel better because pretty much everyone else is terrible at golf too. There's like a small percentage of this population that is actually good at golf, and so I make myself feel better, but because I'm not good at golf, I usually play at really cheap and terrible courses. Um, they, it's not gonna affect my game because my game's terrible anyways. Um, might lose a few more balls in the woods, but that's okay. But there's been a few occasions where I've played at a course that was clearly like a nice course, and the whole time I was like, I should not be here. (laughs) Like, this course is above me. Like, I'm scared to take a shot because I'm going to take a divot, and I'm not worthy to take a divot out of this ground. And I can think of one time in particular as I was golfing, and I saw this cart pull up with these two ladies on it, and they like just stop and start staring at me, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to hit the shot while you're watching. And I hit it, and thankfully it was an okay shot. It was one of the few of the day. It was good. But then they looked at me, and they, like, gave me a thumbs up, and I was like, thank you. Yeah, it was a good shot. And then they just kept staring at me, and I'm like, what are they staring at? And then I realized that something that's common at nicer courses is they have these carts that go around giving people food and beverages. You, you pay for them, and so they just drive around. They'll stop. And that's what these people were doing. They weren't watching my game. They were trying to see if I wanted a snack or something. So when I gave, they asked me if I wanted something, and I just waved. They're like, what is this moron doing? Clearly was out of place and felt that the whole time. Or I think of when Sarah and I, we got gifted a trip to be able to go um, to this all-inclusive resort, which was amazing. We loved it. But there were times where we felt a little uncomfortable because, like, they do everything for you. Like, they're bringing you food at, like, 11 o'clock. If you want wings at 11 o'clock, they bring them to you. They serve you, like, to the top of the line. And Sarah, like, we are not this kind of people. Like, this feels weird for us. Or I think of times watching someone serve in a way that you're like, that's, like, your position seems to think that your, your position wouldn't do this. I actually think of uh, a time where Pastor Kevin and I got to work at the same time a few years ago, and when we got out of the car in the parking lot, there was a shattered glass bottle on the ground, and what I expected is Pastor Kevin would go in, and he's a super nice guy, so he'd talk to someone on our custodial staff and say, hey, there's some glass out there. If you could go get that at some point today, that'd be great. But he walked into cathedral, and he said, hey, where's y'all's, like, trash can and pan and everything? And they showed him, and he went out there, and then you got the lead pastor of this church on his knees before a work day in the parking lot sweeping up broken glass. And I was like, wow, like, that's probably not that common with, with people who have that kind of authority. But it just, it blows your mind when you see it. Now, here's why I tell you the, these things and bring this up. It's tonight, where we are in the Gospel of John, what we're going to see is a passage where there's this service in a way that you wouldn't even think could happen or be possible. And it was to a people who were most certainly unworthy. 
And so that's where we're going tonight for our passage. We're continuing in the Gospel of John. We've been doing a series titled, Come and See. And we said that this is a good just indicator of what the whole book is about, what the whole purpose of this book is. That John wrote this Gospel so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, and, and that in doing so, we would experience life. In a sense, he's saying, hey, here's the person of Jesus. Here is God in the flesh. Come and see him and have him change your life and your eternity. So we've walked through the Gospel of John, and for the last semester, the first half of John, it was really zoomed out, and it was taking place over a few years. But this semester, for the second half, we've talked about how this is taking place over the course of the last week of Jesus' life. It really zeroes in and gets more and more detailed. And what we found is Jesus, throughout his time, through performing miracles, through doing amazing things, he's, he's got people saying, hey, this could be the Christ. This could be the king of kings, the one who's come to, to rescue God's chosen people, to overthrow oppression and establish the, the kingdom of God. Could this be the Christ? And there's this buzz around Jesus. But he's made enemies as well. And that the religious leaders we've seen just leading into this passage have said, hey, he's, this is not good. And so they've set out to, to kill Jesus. And right before this, he's marched into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's, he rode in on a donkey, again affirming that he is indeed the Messiah. And it's for the Passover celebration. Many people, many of the Israelites were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, the time where God had rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and they're commemorating this time, and they're celebrating this time with a festival. And Jesus is there with his disciples celebrating, about to partake in what's known as the Passover Seder. And this is where our passage takes place. And so what I want to do for us tonight is I want us to read... John chapter 13, verses 1 through 30. So we'll read John 13. We'll pull it apart and kind of talk through it. And because what we'll see is this passage, it has incredible imagery. It's one that you really feel as you read, you can place yourself in the story and just feel kind of the weight of the moment. You can get a sense of what's going on. And so I want us to read it, and I want to encourage you to place yourself in the story, really try to see and feel what's happening in the passage. And then afterwards, I want to give us one overarching principle that leads to two applications. So that's where we're going tonight. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to John chapter 13. It's also in your handouts. And I want to encourage you to read along with me as I read our passage. So starting in the first few verses... It says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciple, wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So it says right there in the beginning of the passage that the disciples are there having this meal together, 
And it says from the get-go that Judas has already set up in his heart to betray Jesus. Like, if you haven't been around church that much, you still probably know the name Judas, that he is the one who would betray Jesus. And it's important to know and kind of realize that even leading into this moment, his heart was already set. Like, his mind was already made. And even more importantly than that, Jesus knew it. Jesus, being God, knew all things and knew what was in the heart of Judas. And they're there sharing this meal together. And it says that he gets up. And he begins to, he takes off his outer garments, he ties a towel around, he fills a basin with water, and he starts washing the feet of the disciples. Now, something we all know to be true is that feet are dirty. Feet are disgusting. Especially back in this time. They wore these sandals, they walked around. It's not like the floors were clean and the streets were clean. They walked around, the feet were dirty and disgusting, yet you have Jesus here kneeling down at these men's feet and washing their feet. In this culture, the only ones who would do that would be servants. In fact, in Jewish culture, they wouldn't even let the Jewish servants wash other people's feet. They'd make the Gentile servants do that. Like, it's the lowest of low places Yet Jesus here, their teacher, their rabbi, the one that everyone's saying, this is the king, this is is God's man here on earth with us to set set us free from our oppression. This man humbles himself to serve and wash the dirty feet of his disciples. It continues in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So he's washing the feet, going one by one, and he gets to Peter. And you know, Peter likes to kind of speak up. He says his mind, and and he gets to Peter, and Peter's like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? And Jesus says, hey, you don't get this now, but you're going to get this later. It's going to click. And we see that kind of as a pattern in John, that there's, there's times that Jesus does things, but they only come to understand after what's going to happen in the next week. And then Peter boldly is like, no, 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 no. You are not washing my feet. Like, he's watched Jesus. He's seen him perform miracles. He's seen the power and authority that he has. He's submitted his life to him as his teacher, as his rabbi, following him around, and he's like, you're not washing my dirty feet. Like, that's not happening. And then Jesus says, Peter, you have to let me serve you. Essentially, what he's saying is, you have to let me serve you, because if I don't serve you, then you have no part in me. And this struck Peter, and Peter's thinking strictly physical washing now, not realizing that Jesus is kind of taking this physical act and, and adding a spiritual element to it. And he's like, okay, then Jesus dumped the whole thing on me. Like, wash all of me. If that's what it takes, don't just wash my feet. Wash my head. Wash everything else. 
And, and again, Jesus, he wasn't speaking physically. He was speaking, speaking spiritually and, and talking about their spiritual cleanliness before him. Um, we see that all in Leviticus. In Leviticus, you could become unclean by all kinds of different things, and they'd have to wash themselves in certain ways to be clean before God. But here he's speaking spiritually, and he makes this comment about the one who is clean, who's bathed, only needs to wash his feet. What he's saying is a cultural thing there. See, in this culture, again, your feet were the dirtiest part, but even after you bathed, as soon as you stepped out and stepped in on, and put your feet in sandals and walked out in the dirty ground, your feet were unclean even if everything else was clean. And he makes a statement that seems a little weird saying, hey, y'all are clean, but there's one of you who isn't. And he's speaking again to Judas here because he knew Judas was going to betray him and he knew that Judas did not have a part in him. That Judas was not one of his sheep, as John has said earlier. That he wasn't one of his children. That he would be the betrayer. It continues on in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, blessed are you if you do them. So he, he says, hey, if I, as your Lord, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are exactly right in doing so. I have all authority. I am your Lord. I, am, in fact, am Yahweh, the, the God of the universe. John even says that he was there. He's the agent of creation. If, if this is me and I have washed your feet, how much more so should you go and do likewise? Go and wash one another's feet. Serve and love one another. He continues and finishing up in 18 through the end of the passage. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that it should be given that it should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Jesus, again, he, he says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. 
He quotes uh, Psalm 41.9, a psalm where David has been betrayed by a friend. And that's exactly what's happening here. And he's saying, hey, that psalm, that real event that happened in David's life that he recorded down in a psalm is actually even pointing to me. It has a bigger meaning and it's pointing to this moment here. I'm going to be betrayed by a friend. And as he, he says, he says, I'm telling you this now so that you're going to understand later. I'm giving you a, a heads up so that when it's all said and done, you may believe that I am he. And we've said in the Gospel of John, it's really cool how he uses this phrase, I am he. It's the Greek word ego, which means I, and then and me, which means I am. And so it's kind of a weird combination of saying I, I am. And what we've talked about is that is Jesus being connected with God of the universe. That that was the name of God in the Old Testament when Moses went to Egypt. He said, hey, who should I say has sent me? And God said, I am who I am. Tell them the great I am has sent you. And the name Yahweh is, he is who he is. And so Jesus, again, referencing that he is he, I am he, he's connecting himself and saying, I am the God of the universe. And I'm doing this so that you're going to understand that. But he says, one's going to betray me. And his disciples are, are confused. They're like, what's going on? And so Peter kind of nods at John, like, ask him. Because John, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I think that's hilarious. That he's like, yeah, I mean, he loved those guys, but he loved me more. Like, come on. But he's the beloved disciple. And he, he leans back to Jesus and says, hey, who is it? Who is it that's going to betray you? And Jesus says, it's the one who I dip with this morsel of bread and give him that bread. It is he that's going to betray me. And he does so and dips with Judas. And Judas immediately sets out to do what he was going to do, which was betray him. And he gets up and leaves, and the disciples just assume that he was taking care of financial stuff, which is what he was known to do. And in a moment, we're like, okay, why didn't... He stopped him. If everyone knew he was going to betray him, why didn't they stop him? One argument could be that maybe they were all dipping from different bowls, like throughout the feast, they're like going all around. So maybe he kind of dipped with everyone, and it just was that moment where he hit Judas, and no one kind of noticed. Or maybe it was just him and Judas, and John saw it, and John kind of didn't really know what was going on, what was processing, or just kind of took his cue from Jesus that Jesus didn't do anything about it, so he kind of stepped back. But either way, what we know is Jesus not only has washed the feet of his betrayer, but now he's sharing a meal with his betrayer in a very intimate setting. Potentially, some would even say that he might have been sitting in the seat of honor for that meal. But Judas gets up, he leaves, and I think the ending of the passage is just so poetic because all throughout John's gospel, we see this imagery of light and dark and he talks about in the beginning that the world is in darkness. It's, it's broken and twisted by sin. And Jesus, the light, came into the world. But here in this moment, when Judas leaves to go and betray Jesus, it said, and it was night. Darkness has settled in. And that is exactly what happens. That Ju Judas goes to get his uh, the people who would come and arrest Jesus. Jesus, in the next few chapters, what we'll read is he comes out and he eventually goes and he prays and he's just, he's experiencing a great turmoil within his spirit because he knows what's coming next, crying out to God. And we see Judas return with, with some soldiers 
And then Jesus is taken into custody, arrested. The disciples, his friends, who had been with him for three years, scatter. And he's taken and he's put through a mockery of a trial. He's, he's mocked. He's beaten. He's sentenced to die on a Roman cross. He's flogged. And then they nail him to the instrument death of the cross. And he's crucified and he dies. It was night. Darkness set in. So as we read this passage, we've got to say, okay, what, what are we trying to see here? What, it, what is John emphasizing for us here? And what I want to do is, again, I want to pull one big principle for us that will give us two applications. And here's the big principle. Is we need to see God and we need to see self. We need to look at the person of Jesus, look at God and his character, and have an adequate view of who God is. And when you have a true and adequate view of who God is, it will always lead you to have a true and adequate view of yourself. See God and see self. And when you do this, I want to look at two application points. Number one, when you see God and you see yourself for who you truly are, you will be humbled and cleansed. Be humbled and cleansed. Seeing God's glory always leads you to see your unworthiness. When you see the majesty of God and his perfection and his power and how far above he is, it makes you feel really small. And you will only see your brokenness and your unworthiness before this holy and almighty God. Think about just the nature of what was happening there. Like, if I told you guys, like, okay, instead of the bachelorette after this, we're going to do a foot washing thing, y'all would feel real uncomfortable right now. Like, there may be a, some of you that's like, okay, whatever, but my guess is the majority of you would be panicked and hit the door as soon as you possibly could. It makes you feel uncomfortable. Why? You don't want anyone smelling your feet, touching your crusty toes. Like, you don't need that. Like, it, you're like, this is gross. I don't I need anyone doing that. Think of what's happening there with Peter. You, you can hear it in his language. Peter has seen Jesus. He's seen him work miracle after miracle after miracle. He's getting a sense of who he is. Peter's the one who says, hey, this is the Messiah, the Son of God. He sees the majesty of Jesus, his rabbi, his teacher, and then he sees Jesus there at his dirty feet. He's like, no. I'm not worthy of that. No, you can't wash my feet, Jesus. He's humbled before him. Because when you see God for who he is, you'll get a sense of who you really are. This is a pattern seen all in Scripture, actually. It's really, really interesting. If you read throughout Scripture, you'll see this pattern over and over again where a man, a man or a woman or someone will come into the presence of God and they hit the ground in humility. Like you see it with the prophet Isaiah when he's in the throne room in his vision. He sees the throne of God and he hits the ground and says, Behold, I'm a man of unclean lips. You see it with Ezekiel, same thing. Presence of God hits the ground. You see it with several prophets. You see it in the New Testament with Peter, James, and John. They're up on the mountain of transfiguration and when filled with the glory and the presence of God, they hit the ground. The Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, the presence of God comes, he hits the ground. John in Revelation, the presence of God hits the ground. 
when you have an awareness and a sense of the presence of God and his fullness and his glory, the only adequate response is, woe is me. Humility and face down in humility is the only proper response. When you see God's glory, you'll be humbled because you'll be well aware of your own brokenness. You'll be well aware of your unworthiness. You'll be well aware that there's this holy standard and you fall underneath it. Like even if you are looking at at the standards you place on other people, like if we could take a transcript for every passing judgment you have on someone else, like every time you look at them, be like, I can't believe they did that, or I can't believe he said that, or she said that. If we had a transcript of your standard that you've created, you probably don't even, uh, you definitely don't even measure up to your own standard. And God's standard is holy, and it's perfect. And so when you see the standard and perfection of his character, you recognize you fall short. When you see the glory of God, you get a sense of your capacity for betrayal, that you've rebelled against this God. You see it actually in this passage. It's really fascinating. When Jesus says, hey, one of you is going to betray me, the disciples don't pipe in and say, no, we're not going to betray you. You're crazy. We've been with you for three years. They don't, they're not confident in fighting against that. Like Peter's going to be confident other times and pipe in, but he doesn't pipe in there and say, no, I wouldn't betray you. Why? I think it's because they have a sense that they all have the capacity for betrayal. Maybe even for, for many of them, as he says, one of you will betray me, their mind has flashed to some failure or some sin that they've gone through, that they've committed, how they've rebelled against the holy God, and now he's saying, hey, one of you's going to betray me, betray me, and they're questioning, oh no, was it me? Did I do it? You get a sense of that in Mark's gospel when he records this, when he says, one of you will betray me, the disciples one by one, are, it says, are sorrowful and say, is it I? Is it me? Did did I do this? Because the reality is we're far closer to Judas than we even realize. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we are sinners deserving of his just wrath. In fact, the, the scriptures will say that we are his enemies. But here's the reality. This interaction is not meant to show you your brokenness and leave you in that brokenness. This interaction is pointing to something so amazing. It's pointing to a fundamental truth that's all throughout Scripture, where it's recorded in the Psalms and Proverbs, it's recorded in the New Testament, where this verse that will say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That God sets his face against the proud, the hardened heart, which we've seen all through John, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the brokenhearted. In the pattern where we see uh, men in the presence of God falling on their face, what we also see in, in all of these instances, we see God coming and sending some messenger or sending some being, some agent to act on his behalf to then raise that person up. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing. See, Jesus, when he washed the disciples' feet, it was an unbelievable act. Like, it's mind-blowing that the God of the universe would wash their dirty feet. But the reality is he didn't just do it for the sake of washing their feet. He was pointing to what was coming. And what was coming would overshadow this act in great measure. What was coming is his 
uh, crucifixion. That the Son of God came, and he came to suffer and to die, to take on sin. That he who knew no sin became sin and was crucified on the cross of Christ, drinking fully the wrath of God. That he came to serve us, to love us. That while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, he came to die for us. Paul in Philippians 2 verse 5 says it this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, though he was God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or to be clung to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus served and washed their feet to point to his ultimate act of service, that he would leave glory and step down and walk among us, that he would suffer and die on our behalf, and then after his death, he would be raised to life, placed in a place of glory, so that what John has said this whole time, when we believe in him, when we would trust him for salvation, our sins will be forgiven, that we who were unclean will be made clean, and that we would receive life through him. That's what the whole night was about. It was pointing to Jesus' ultimate service on the cross. And so the call is to come to Jesus and be cleaned. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. Some, some people have this misconception that let me start doing the right things and then I'll come to Jesus. And the reality is that's not what the Bible says. That's not the gospel the gospel says you're dirty, you're broken. Come as you are, and I will make you clean. I used to think of when, uh, when we were younger, my parents, we'd have this uh, person we'd pay to come clean the house, and my, my mom, I would crack up every time because she'd say, hey, you, you've got to get the house clean because it's, they're coming to clean it tomorrow. And I'm like, wait a minute, why are we cleaning it? Aren't we paying them to clean it? Why do we have to clean it beforehand? And it always blew my mind. Some people take that approach to Christianity. It's like, no. Come in your sin, come in your brokenness, be made clean through the grace of God. Look to God, fall on your face in humility, believe in him, and then he raises you up. And then make that a constant posture of your life. Many of you have been following Jesus for some time, but what we have to remember is this is the constant posture of our lives consistently looking to God, consistently in humility, confessing sin and repenting sin, knowing that that sin is forgiven, knowing that that sin has been taken care of on the cross of Christ, and then living in light of that forgiveness. See, our sin doesn't jeopardize our sonship. Like, it's not that we confess sin because, oh no, I might not be saved anymore. Once you've confessed Christ as Lord, once you've humbled yourself before him, you are a secured child of God, cleansed by his blood. But when we have the tendency to go back and fall into sin, it doesn't jeopardize our sonship, but it does hinder our relationship. That, that it, it dr likes to drive a wedge between you and God, and so we have to constantly confess our sins before the Lord. Follower of Jesus, when was the last time you found yourself 
looking to God and his glory and his majesty and then confessing your sin in humility. A day that we have not confessed sin before God is a day that we have not seen our sin. We must constantly find ourselves on our face before God. And then the second practical application, and lastly is this, is that when you see God and you see yourself, the natural response is to then serve others, is to serve others. Jesus says, hey, go and do as I have done. I have set the example for you. Wash one another's feet. Serve one another. If Yahweh, the God of the universe, is willing to wash the feet of the one who betrayed him and those who would desert him, what is it exactly that you're above doing? What is beneath you exactly? If the God of the universe, Yahweh, the creator of all things, was willing to come and humble himself to the point of death on a cross to reconcile sinners, to save his enemies, to call them sons and daughters, who is it exactly that you're above serving? When we see what Jesus has done for us and the way he has ultimately served us, the natural reaction from our hearts will, to be go, will be to go and do likewise, to serve those around us, to serve others. And we've got to realize it's not just service for the sake of serving. It's not just serving as the end goal of, of making sure someone's belly's full or make sure someone's financially stable. It's not just serving for the sake of serving. Jesus doesn't wash their feet just for the sake of getting their feet clean. He does it to point them to himself and his person and his finished work on the cross and the way that he served. When we serve others, we don't serve for just the sake of serving. We serve as a proclamation and a tangible expression of the gospel. We serve because when we were nothing, when we were lowly, Christ humbled himself to serve us. And so we serve those around us. Now, this doesn't mean that every time you hold a door, you've got to chase someone down and do like a full gospel presentation and hit them over the head with a Bible. I'm not saying that you have to do that. But what I am saying is you cannot divorce the gospel from serving. Because if you just serve for the sake of serving, they're going to be hungry again. Gonna, there's going to be a need. Ultimately, this life will pass away. It's only finite. So when we serve, we have our eye on the eternal. We have our hearts set on the gospel. So who do we serve? We serve one another. We serve other brothers and sisters in, in Christ. That all through the New Testament, when we see this one another language, and we see a lot of times when it's, when it's, uh, talking about serving and helping others, most of the time it's geared towards helping those in the body of Christ. So we serve one another, but we serve one another as an expression and an encouragement of the gospel. That when we serve one another, it reminds each other of what Jesus has done for us. When we humble ourselves and serve each other, we're pointing each other back to Jesus. So we serve other believers, and we serve the world around us. We serve everyone. Remind yourself this, that Judas was in that group, who Jesus said was not clean. He was not one of his sheep. He was not one of his children. Yet, Jesus washed his feet anyways. We have 
a world that is in darkness around us. We have a world that is dying without the hope of Jesus. We must be agents who take the gospel to the darkness of this world, who proclaim the light of Christ to the darkness of this world. And so we serve everyone around us as a tangible expression, as a tangible proclamation of the gospel, that when we serve, it is a way that they can see and feel and experience the truth of the gospel in a way that they might not experience otherwise. We serve the lost. We go to the lost. That's the pattern, actually, that we've talked about this whole time, that when, when man sees God, they hit the ground. God comes, and he raises him up, and then oftentimes what we see is he sends him out to proclaim his message. We who have humbled ourselves before God, we who have been restored to relationship with him, are now his ambassadors. We now go, and we do as has been done for us, and we serve and proclaim his message to the lost and dying world around us. How do we do it? You can spend all day talking about it. Anything that comes up, you do it practically, taking care of physical needs. You do it, if someone's struggling in a class and you have a knack for it, go help them out. If someone's struggling financially and you and your friends can gather some resources, help them out. You do it emotionally and mentally. You, you go, you listen to people, you talk to them, you sacrifice time to, to be with them. Spiritually to encourage them and point them to Jesus. We serve the church. Come help hold a baby on a Sunday morning so a mom can go and worship and be filled up. Serve in whatever way you see. Be, be reactive in it. So when you see a need, go take care of it. But be proactive. Anticipate the needs of others. A lot of times people will say, hey, what do you need me to do? And everyone mostly says, oh, I'm, I'm fine. If you see something that could be done, just go and do it. Be the gospel to the world around you. Christian, is your life marked with serving? Is your life marked with humble serving? Or do you find that you're being selfish? Do you find that you're given over to pride and that you are more inwardly focused? One of the best ways to stir our hearts to God is to serve. And when we serve, we are taking on his very heartbeat and it grows us closely as well. So just wrapping it together, develop a rhythm of casting your eyes to God, his glory, his majesty, his character. Be humbled by that. Have an adequate view of yourself. Regularly confess sin. Repent of that sin. Know that you've been forgiven of that sin. And then go and you serve other people. Go and be a tangible expression of the gospel in a dark and dying world. That's my hope. That's my prayer for you. That's my hope and my prayer for our ministry, for this church. And I think what we'll find is if this will be a regular rhythm of our lives, you're going to see God do amazing things.